what's been fun, I think, being in the role that, that I'm in now is actually seeing the other side of things. Uh, it's not just about numbers on an Excel sheet uh, or hopefully in Mosaic. Uh, it's actually, what does it take to go hire a, a sales team? What does it take to start to boil down that sales methodology into something that, that other folks can learn and, and repeat? Um, and, and so that, that would be kind of one piece of advice that I would give to, to folks in the finance space is spend time, really get to know your peers and departments that you're working with and try to see the business through their lens, not just through the finance side of the coin, which is typically numbers uh, on a spreadsheet. Welcome to Founder Chats by Barometrics, where we chat with founders, hear how they started and grew their businesses. This week, Brian talked with Bijan Moalemi, the CEO and co-founder of Mosaic, a financial wellness and benefits platform. Finance teams often spend the majority of their efforts in reactive mode, wrangling data to unlock basic facts about the past. Moisa breaks that cycle by integrating data, automating analytics, and connecting teams so they can focus on the future. Awesome. Thanks so much for joining us today. How are you doing? Doing well, Brian. Thanks so much for having me. Really appreciate it. Yeah, my pleasure. Well, let's kind of get into your story here. Where'd you start your entrepreneurial journey? Yeah, so uh, journey started actually down here in San Diego, did two years of corporate finance at Qualcomm, large Fortune 100 company. Uh, two years in, wanted to make the jump to a uh, faster pace company, got really fortunate to join Palantir Technologies when we were right around 100 folks. I uh, met my <clears throat> my future co-founders there, Joe and Brian, spent six years at Palantir. Uh, just an incredible journey. I think we were almost 3,000 doing three quarters of a billion in revenue by the time we left. And uh, it was really those six years at, at Palantir that felt more like 50 uh, that really helped shape kind of our view on the strategic finance space and ultimately uh, spurred us to want to start our own company. So uh, happy to dive in a little more, but that's kind of the high level on, cool. on my background. Yeah, it's awesome. What, what made you go to Qualcomm in the first place? What was your kind of attraction into the space? Yeah. Um, so this was this was 2010, uh, still kind of dealing with the economic crisis. I had gone to UCSD, born and raised here in San Diego, um, and knew I wanted to get into finance, didn't know exactly where to break in, actually had done a couple internships there, uh, was looking for a full-time gig, and got really fortunate to uh, work my way into an FP&A role there. So uh, definitely uh, appreciate that opportunity and was a great foundation to get, really understand how uh, the nuts and bolts uh, of a Fortune 100 company looks like and some of the processes and structures that, that a company of that stage has in place. Yeah, that's awesome. Yeah, and did you, when you were going that route, were you thinking FP&A was the place for you or did you even know like what that department really was or was it kind of, uh, or was that something you had in mind? You're like, yeah, this is kind of the area that I want to be yeah. when I join a company. I, I think... I think it was more strong conviction weekly held, um, at least for me. And I feel like as I've talked to more folks over the years, coming out of school, age 20, 21, you, you never quite know exactly what you want to do. Maybe you have an idea. But I think what, what I've seen over the years is th those ideas can change. Um, and so for me, I think wanted to be in finance broadly. FP&A was kind of a nice gateway into corporate finance. Uh, didn't know where it would take me. Definitely had no no idea that it would take me to starting my own business in the space. Uh, but um, yeah, it was a, a, a great, great first gig out of school without a doubt. That's awesome. And when you were going to make the switch, was it kind of like Palantir, was that like a... Um, like an opportunity popped up? Were you kind of actively looking or how did you, you know, how did you wind up making the, the switch there? Yeah. Yeah. I was actively looking. So, um, <laughs> as, as great as the, the role was, um, working at a very large organization, um, gosh, I, 30, 40,000 strong coming in as an entry level role that that first year, first year and a half felt like there was a ton to learn, um, mm -hmm. really mastering Excel, mastering uh, the the Cognos, the system we were using, really understanding the fundamentals. Um, but right around kind of that year, year and a half mark, felt like the learning curve had dipped a bit. Um, when done right, in my mind, corporate finance, FP&A, can be a little bit monotonous and maybe sometimes boring when you have kind of the, the same 
quarterly, monthly, annual reporting. I, I probably could have told you every meeting that I was going to have uh, two, three weeks out. And I, I think for me at that stage of my career, still felt like I had more to give, more to learn. Uh, and so it was actively looking at opportunities. A lot of my friends um, had made the jump to high growth tech up in the Bay Area. Hmm. Um, and so it was right around um, Christmas time, about two years in, decided, hey, uh, I, I want to go attack this. Um, kind of made a commitment to myself. I wanted to move up to the Bay Area and get into high growth tech myself. That's awesome. Yeah, we, we, we actually are kind of hiring on the, the finance side ourselves, and I think it's kind of challenging. We're, we're sort of on the opposite side of we're kind of trying to draw people out of the big, you know, accounting roles into the startup world. And it's, uh, I can imagine just hearing their experience, it was like, you know, really like, um, you know, when you're trying to get anything done, it's like it runs through this form and then it goes to this place. And then, you know, well, it's like just even asking people, what's your job? It's like, well, you know, these three people send me these yeah. files and then I combine them together and then I send them to this other person. And then that like goes up the chain somewhere that they don't know. So um, I imagine you probably get like pretty deep expertise into like particular parts of the funnel. But I, I imagine it's I, and I don't know if you can obviously I'm speaking from somebody else's experience, but it kind of almost feels like a little bit silent if you want to kind of understand like the full life cycle of what's going on um it sounds and it sounds like maybe that's what would happen with you but please yeah please no, correct that, me. that's absolutely right i think the bigger you get the more specialized roles become not just in finance but probably across other parts of the organization and well as well and uh for me was kind of managing the the budget for uh, a few different teams of one product inside of the company so in terms of the overall company's financial health, et cetera, seeing a very small piece of the puzzle. Uh, contrast that to Palantir, day one, sign my HR forms. Uh, two hours later, early afternoon, I've got the CFO over one shoulder, CEO over the other. I'm knee deep in a financial model, cranking out board slides for a company that I know nothing about. So very different experience, kind of just getting thrown right into the deep end. But that's, that's kind of what I was looking for and knew early on that first day that Palantir was going to be exactly what I'd hoped and then some. That's awesome. So I'm kind of curious, you had a pretty good a pretty good run there. I'm kind of curious, like, how did the role change over time? Or did it, you know, maybe it's always kind of like, it's just a, a series of getting thrown in the deep end over and over. And once you kind of like acclimate, you get like lifted out and thrown into like another, you know, even deeper end. But what, yeah, how did that role change over time? And then what kind of, what else did you pick up over your, over your six years there? Yeah, yeah, the, the, the role changed significantly. Uh, joined the, the finance team in uh, late 2011, early 2012. Team was very small. Um, as, as I mentioned, company was just over 100 folks. We hadn't gone through an audit in a few years. Uh, we didn't have our ERP or kind of even basic fundamentals in terms of our own numbers in order. Uh, so that that first phase was, hey, let's <laughs> let's build a foundation to to work off of. Uh, and then, of course, really fortunate to uh, be working for a company where everything was just up into the right. We're, we're doubling revenue, headcount expenses every three to six months. And the, the pace at which the business was moving was just incredible. So uh, for us very quickly realized um, trying, trying to use traditional methods to solve a, a lot of the strategic finance problems that we were facing, getting visibility to the different areas of the business around forecasts, numbers, headcount planning, et cetera, trying to do all that work manually in Excel just really wasn't going to cut it for us. So um, probably about a year and a half, two years in, um, really leaned into technology, uh, tried a lot of the off-the-shelf tools out there. And then ultimately, the, the, the next four years was really all around building our own set of internal tools, building a technical finance team to solve these problems in a more scalable way. Uh, and so it was kind of that journey over the course of six years that that ultimately led us to to start Mosaic, and again, just feel really fortunate um, to have gone through that experience. Um, not not many folks get to see and be hands on building a company during that stage of of hyper growth. Yeah, that's awesome. And I think like we talk to companies in similar stages. I'm wondering maybe this will be a little bit too broad, but I, I'd be curious to get your feedback on like what some of like the milestones are of like going from. Um, 
you know, but it doesn't sound like you're quite at this stage at early days of Palantir of like, we have no financial planning or no, no structure, but it sounds like there was actually quite little at, you know, that early stage of the company. Like, what are the, and I guess one of the reasons why I'm kind of thinking about this as milestones is I think you can, you can over-engineer too. If, you know, if you have a, obviously if you have like a pre-revenue startup that has like an incredibly complex, you know, FP&A system set up and it's like, well, you know, like, what are you, what are you measuring? What are you forecasting? You have no money. You're not, you know, the the forecast will tell you, you need to make money. Mm -hmm. Um, Can you kind of like think through like, what are those kind of stages of like, you know, like when is it time for an ERP or like when, when do you kind of cross these thresholds to level up as far as like financial um, complexity and like, and then when are like the triggers in order to kind of move from, you know, phase one to phase two? Yeah. It's a really great question. Um, uh, It's interesting, right? You think about a brand new startup and you raise a little bit of money. You've got founders who most likely are not finance experts. They're going to be focused on building out the team, building an early product, selling. Um, At this stage, highly recommend do not spend too much time thinking about finance if if you uh, are spending your first year and and you can say hey i've got my books in order and everything is world class and tight you're probably not spending your time in the most wise uh, areas. So I think at this stage early on, um, we definitely recommend getting a bookkeeper. You don't want to create too much debt for yourself. But at this stage, I think it is expected and totally normal for finance to maybe be uh, on the back burner, just given that there's so many other things that that need to happen to keep the business running. Um, It's typically around that series A or maybe seed Uh, maybe B really depends on kind of the maturity of the company where uh, the finance function goes from kind of being on the back burner to something that's more important when you have that that new board member they're asking for the five-year plan they're asking for some of your unit economic metrics they want to understand the path to growth or profitability Uh, and so it's right around that stage when when we typically recommend investing more heavily in in the finance function Um, I, i think from kind of the the a to b or b to c phase finance goes from being an immature function to one that can really actually propel the business forward. Um, and, and what I mean by that is early on, uh, as you're building out your system stack, as you're getting your data hygiene in order, uh, typically you're reporting more backwards looking. What happened last month? Maybe what happened last week? What's happening now? Uh, but the, the finance function can become more strategic, more powerful as you get more visibility into the future. So it's no longer what happened last month, but where are we now? And tell me the different permutations of the future that that are possible between now and the rest of the year. And so, th- that's really that that major inflection point where finance can be be uh, kind of a, a more strategic, forward-looking function instead of a, a back office check the, off, the the check the box type function. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So it's sort of like the. Kind of in the early stages, that kind of Im- immature stage, it's almost like you're, uh, you're kind of like almost checking the boxes to a certain point. Like you know, you're, you're doing not necessarily the bare minimum, but like you need to like you know know what your expenses yep. are, and you need to, and all of that is kind of just you know. Uh, at a base level, you know, keeping things under control and looking in reverse. Um, like at that stage, like how much is, how much is really being done like if you have like an outsourced bookkeeper that's keeping track of things is that just a matter of categorizing expenses and tracking and kind of just giving you like the basic maybe like departmental breakdown of like how much are you spending in sales versus engineering and those sorts of things yeah that's absolutely right um and i i would recommend trying to find a reputable bookkeeper at this point i think the one thing that you don't want is you don't want to be building off of a shaky foundation. And so uh, typically uh, what we see more often than not is companies at this stage maybe are a little too loose here where mm. they are not using the department or class field taggings. And so by that, by the time investors start wanting to see a, a P&L by department or uh, a little more granularity, they actually haven't been baking that ontology into their system. They haven't been taking their data that way. And so it, it does take a, a pretty decent sized lift to then kind of go back, retroactively tag things. I guess the, the counter argument to that might be, hey, when I'm really small, departments haven't yet fully formed and 
the org structure could be changing quite significantly. So uh, the, my, my two cents there would be build in some high-level tagging. You can always get more granular later on, but the, the sooner you start to do some of those fundamentals, really build out some of the ontology in t inside of your systems, like your ERP, the better off you'll be in the long run. Yeah, it's interesting. And it's almost like a... Um it's almost like a clarity of thought thing as well of like if you're early on and you're spending money and you can't really clearly articulate like what department or like how that money is being spent. Um, I think that's where you'll, I, I guess I've seen two things. One is sort of that clarity of thought level of like, yeah, it's like, well, when you're spending money, do you know, is this a marketing expense or is this a sales expense or is this an engineering? Yep. You, you should be able to, maybe sometimes it's unclear, uh, but you should be able to kind of, I, I think it's, I think that's time well spent to understand how you're spending money and where it's going. Yeah, um, absolutely. I, I totally agree there. Maybe you don't know the individual or the sub team that it's going to at that stage, but broadly, even beyond the dollars and cents, right? Intuitively, as a, as a founder, as an early stage employee, you want to understand where you're spending your time, where you're investing calories across the business. And... Are, are you getting the return or seeing some of the progress that you'd expect based on based on those inputs? So totally agree with you there. Yeah. The other thing that we've seen is people will it not necessarily based off of like a a non clarity of thought, although it could be, you know, could be an underlying factor um, is just like in just for sheer expedience. So we've seen things like you'll have one account called salaries. And like, that's where all the salaries go. <laughs> and it's like very easy to do that because, you know, you have whatever payroll system that you're using and you get debited from them twice a yep. month. And um, you, uh, you know, you just put that, categorize that whole expense. And then you're like, yeah, this is our, uh, you know, this is our plan. We, you know, I, I've seen like, you know, the, the finance spreadsheets that are like, how much money do you make? It's the top line. And then like, there's like, you know, like hosting and then uh, salaries and then like, software and then like here's how much money we have left over and generally for those businesses there's always money like they're they're in the state of being profitable uh, or they're kind of break even or something like that they're, they're not in a cash burn situation so um, they don't feel like they really need the level of clarity beyond that um, but to your point you know if you don't set those systems up earlier like every every month yep. that you don't split your salaries out that's another month that when it's time to grow up you have to go back and you know if you have to go back and split three months it's like not that yep. big of a deal but if you have to go back and split three years um to show and if you're you know especially if you're trying to use that data from a forward-looking perspective it's like well how much have we you know what's the ratio between marketing and engineering been historically it's like well now you have to go back yeah. and it's yeah. like every every it's like a, a, every single step in the wrong direction is like you have to go back and like retrace those it, steps it's totally right and i guess to tack on to that a little bit most likely the only person or people that are going to be able to kind of dig up the past and give you that color is going to be one of the early employees. So is it, right. is it a good use of the CEO's time or the COO or whoever co-founder's time to spend a couple weeks working with the accountants hour after hour, retagging expenses, trying to understand who did what three, four years ago? Definitely not. Mm -hmm. So uh, yeah. I think you're spot on there. A little bit early on goes a long way. Uh, don't need to over-engineer it at this stage, but uh, it is important to to start to build that that solid foundation early. Got it. Cool. And so what's going on as the as we're kind of as the business is shifting out of that stage that you're talking about now and getting into where it's time to be, you know, uh, finance takes a little bit more of a, of a um, strategic role and it's a little bit more forward facing what's happening within the business. I, I think you mentioned as far as fundraising, but maybe what are kind of the steps that are going on internally to shift from this, you know, kind of finance as defense yeah. to finance as yeah. offense. So, so typically at this stage for a startup, you have more capital. Um, maybe you've raised an A, maybe you raised a B, but capital is finite. Um, so you're looking at runway. And then, of course, there's probably some sort of revenue generation and a few inputs to that. Maybe it's sales reps and sales rep capacity. Uh, maybe you've got a PLG model. But there's, there's more work to do to understand what could different sales forecasts look like um, 
obviously headcount is going to be a main driver on the expense side because you need to grow the team in order to grow revenue and support that revenue growth. So the, the complexity just does start to grow pretty considerably at this stage to where mm. um, having an accountant who's really going to be focused on kind of getting the 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 the, 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 the the historical numbers into your ERP system is helpful, but you probably do need someone at this phase who is fairly dedicated, if not fully dedicated to understanding the different aspects of the business and starting to model out these, these different scenarios. Got it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, yeah, it feels like I, I, I've seen the same thing. It feels like the big question and the big cause of inflection is that as you're raising money, um, it certainly fundraise is like one of the biggest drivers of, of leveling up financial acuity, financial complexity internally, because uh, you have to answer the question of like, okay, well, if we give you $5 million, how are you yep. going to spend it? And then how is that going to turn into, well, I was going to say 10 million, but more like, how's that going to turn into, you know? five billion yeah exactly <laughs> on, on the other end so you have to um and then also to your point as you it's almost like um a reinforcing system because like as you deploy that capital you're hiring people on the yep. sales team and like okay well how are we tracking and how are we measuring the effect of the sales team towards revenue and then in order to, and then we have whatever you know more engineers and then how are we tracking our you know feature development to revenue and how are we justifying investments in projects so you just have more things spinning yep. Um, and you have more money and then you also have a higher level of accountability and account higher, like someone's actually asking, um, somebody's going to ask the question, you know, okay, well you spent X amount in salaries. How much of that was here yep. versus there? Like someone's going to be curious about these things. Like, Hey, where's my, where's my money? <laughs> like, what are you doing with it? Um, so it, it does seem like it almost goes hand in hand of like, as you, as you have the need and as you start to scale up that introduces complexity and then you need to um, manage the complexity and then also kind of report on, you know, what did we think was going to happen and what yep. actually happened? Yeah, that, that's absolutely right. I, I, I couldn't agree more that. Cool. Is there a, um, it feels like we've kind of talked about, you know, stage one and stage two, are there, are there later stages or, or does it kind of, you kind of just get into a continuum of like, okay, it's more, you know, kind of more the same. Once you start kind of scaling up around finance, you kind of just same premise, but you keep kind of going and, and getting more specific in each, yeah, each area. I, I think now we're starting to talk a little bit about that specialization, right? Where the org is more complex there. It's deeper, it's wider, there's more systems, there's more data to track. Um, and then from there, the stakes, as you just pointed out, continue to be higher and higher. Um, so I, the, the, I think the, the real question becomes, are you gonna build a finance or data team that just scales linearly with the size of the org? Or are you gonna start to invest in systems and processes that allow you to scale yourself and to where you don't need to be adding one ops person or one finance person for every 10 hires you make or whatever that that ratio might be yeah do you find that when i think one of the challenges that companies have um when they're going through this is that they they're they're coming to as they go through this transition is they're coming to grips with the fact that what they're being asked to do is to predict the future and then they kind of need to figure out like what they're what their favored model is going to be. Like, do you have any advice for companies going through that transition of, you know, I, I've seen everything from like, you know, obviously on the barometric side, we're looking more on the product, yeah. product led side. So what's your, what's your new MRR? What does your expansion look like versus contraction and churn? What does your reactivations look like? What does that look like historically? And then how can we project yep. that into the yep. future? Um, but, you know, we'll have people that are operating from a sales model and they're trying to figure out like, okay, well, how quickly do our sales team, sales members ramp? Um, how how much can each person possibly sell in a month? And then if our goal is this, when do we need to start hiring to get to that number? And, you know, those sorts of things. And um, we've seen other things as far as like people projecting yep. funnels and looking at trial numbers. Like, do you have any sort of like, I know, it's, I imagine your answer is probably like, hey, it depends on the company. Yeah. <laughs> but do you have any kind of like high level guidance for like, as people are trying to suss out like, 
which almost like which model do we use to kind of, I guess specifically for revenue forecasting, like which model should we use to figure out what our drivers are and then how is that going to extend into the yeah, future? Yeah, so I think you're spot on, right? With with revenue and kind of the top line side of the house, that is where I would spend the most amount of time. Um, on the expense side, I think things are a little easier and, and you do have a little more control, right? The biggest input, yeah. especially for software companies with headcount, headcount related expenses, et cetera, it's going to be 75% or more of your cost. So if you can nail headcount and you've got a good headcount planning process, you should be 90, 95% accurate on a monthly basis and being 96 or seven, like on the margin, it, it doesn't really move the needle for the business that much. Really right. what is going to be start to become more important is the, the revenue side of the house. So I think what's interesting there, right, is as you, and let's say you're starting as founder based selling, you're bringing on a rep, your, your first few reps models get easier when you have more data and there's more predictability. So early on, um, right. <laughs> there's not a lot of data uh, and you might oversample the data by looking at a good month or a good quarter or your CEO who's selling or a super rep who's selling uh, and you can't necessarily yep. project that out. So um, I, I think my advice here would be don't, don't, don't oversample the data, number one, and run a handful of different models and consistently kind of go back and understand how accurate were they and probably would be triangulating based on running a, a few different versions or a few different ways to cut the data until you have right. a, a meaningful set of data over, gosh, a year and a half, two years, probably to really start accurately leaning in on one specific model to, to predict the future. Yeah, as I've been advising companies, sometimes you will see those revenue models where it'll be like, you know, like, um, you know, SDR1 does this, SDR does to this, you know, AE1 does this, AE2 does this, and then it'll be like Michelle yep. or something, you know, it'll be like somebody's name because like Michelle is like an absolute like killer and Michelle generates twice, you know, closes twice the rate. So it doesn't make sense to like, uh, they, they've almost... It feels like everybody's almost gotten to that same point of like, well, we almost have to like separate Michelle from the batch because Michelle is like anomalous. And so if we model, if we average out, then we'll have one rep who always performs better and then all the others reps that perform worse. So we kind of have to like, like pull that data point out and be like, yeah, like Michelle rules. So like we can't like, we can't assume that anybody else is going to perform at that level. Um, which almost feels like good intel for the business as well. If you have one AE or you have one person in any given role that you can kind of, some businesses just don't know. Like they just can't quite tell that that's the case. So even if you know, you can be like, okay, well, what are they doing? Are they just like uniquely gifted? Yeah. Like, I, I think it's also the case, like you said, with CEO sales, it's like, it's just yep. different. Like you probably know the product very well. Um, the person that you're selling to is going to be very amenable to like, you know, you just, it's just, people are nicer to you. If anybody who's like dipped into support <laughs> and has not changed your name from the other person, you'll tell that people treat you nicer if you're the leader versus someone that's in support. Um, and you also have the authority, like you can just do whatever you want where the sales team probably has a process that they need to follow. And they have like a, you know, a discounting yep. strategy, hopefully, you know, they, they, they are not going to feel as like they have carte blanche to if you're the CEO, you'd be like, yeah, you know, yeah, three yep. months for free. Yep. Sure. Let's try that. And then we'll lock in, but let's lock into a two year deal. And, uh, you have six, 60 days, to, like whatever. It's all these like weird things that like don't exist and sends the team scrambling, but that'll, that'll close deals. Um, so you can't really model like the, a sales rep can't and really shouldn't, but uh, like actually the CEO shouldn't be doing that, but <laughs> that's how it kind of works, you know, kind of at the earlier yeah, stages. No, I, I think that's right. And what you mentioned, I mean, we, we've gone through that similar journey where, Founders do have an ability to sell their product in a way that sales reps and anyone else just doesn't have. Um, and, and even early stage AEs, when they start being successful, it's really, they're doing something that works. They may not know exactly what that is. They may not be able to write it down or speak to it, but it's, it's really trying to hone in on what is working and distill that down to a formula that can be replicated to start to bring in other folks, train them on that methodology and consistently deploy it to get that those results. And as soon as you're at that point where it's formulaic, it's recipe based, mm. that's when 
you're probably at the stage where you can hone in on one specific revenue model and feel really good about this is the right way to think about forecasting the revenue side of the business. Yeah, it's really interesting because I think a lot of times when people are struggling to understand their finances, what it's actually revealing is that they don't actually understand their business. Uh, it's like, well, it's like, well, yeah, like how many or what? what is your revenue model or how many how many sales? Let's say your your goal is going to quadruple next year. How many sales rep do you, do you need to, to hit that? And when do you need to hire? It's like if, if you don't know that, that indicates that you're still sort of searching for what that yep. model is. And I think that is also a good realization because you you might i mean there's always a million things going on when you're running a business so you might be under the the misconception that you actually understand how your business grows and how you make more money um and once you actually say okay well let's predict you know next quarter or next month and you realize that you don't have a clear way to articulate that then it's like oh well that in itself is that doesn't mean you should give up on the financial modeling. That means you should figure out the underlying business component and then kind of come back and you can use the, the model is always also a great way to be like, well, what, were we right yep. or not? Like, did we, did we guess correctly or did we not guess correctly? And I, I, I don't know. I'd be curious your feedback on this. Cause you probably see it uh, a bunch. Like, are those like initial guesses? Like, are they incorrect more than they're correct or are they directional or like what maybe we can kind of talk a little bit too about that transition of like you're going from that stage one company into stage two like what is that what is that transition going to look like and what are some of the what are some of the speed bumps that you're going to run into through that process yeah yeah i I think you're spot on right it's my i'm always at the mind of let's track as many data points as we possibly can um this is one of those things where if you don't have a forecast it's not like the gl tagging where you can go back and retroactively tag things you just you don't have a stance on what you predicted at that time so uh for for me it's let's actually invest a good chunk of time here have a thesis, have a hypothesis on how we think we might be able to sell, what rep ramp might look like, how long it takes to hire an AE or whatever it might be. Um, not because it's we're going to be right or wrong, more more because we can learn from it. And as soon as we kind of have a bar um, and we've either met or not met that bar, there's something to learn and we can continue dialing in that forecast. So I think at this stage, it's less around you're going to nail your forecast because you're probably not, but it's it's just about repetition. It's about starting to build that, that muscle and starting to go through that process of... Um, having data, using data to, to run your business and then learning from that data to, uh, to change strategies or, uh, grow as needed. Yeah. It's almost the opposite, right? It's like, you're going to be wrong. Like the, the number of people that forecast their business and model their business correctly on the first pass is like probably, it's probably like near zero. Um, and maybe people who have been you know run multiple businesses and you know and maybe they're they're starting a new business that's very similar to the old business maybe they can get close but i I get that pushback a lot when i talk to people where they're like it's like oh let's you know let's create a forecast like well i don't know what it's going to be in the future and you know these are just (laughs) guesses this is all bullshit and it's like well well no (laughs) it's 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 the nobody's expecting this. Well, I know maybe there are people that are, you know, if you have investors, they are probably expecting it to be correct. Um, that's, I think that's a lot of times when you hear, see like five year projections and things like that, people are like, this is kind yep. of nonsense and yep. it never happens. But it's almost like your point is like, well, yes, but yes, it is nonsense and it is probably not going to happen, but it's extremely useful and it's a valuable, if you think through it, if you can even get directionally correct, that's useful. And then even if you miss, you can see the better your the more detailed your forecast, the closer you can see where you're missing. Like maybe you're just maybe your reps are just ramping yep. slower than you thought that, but they are getting to kind of the max levels that you're expecting. Or maybe they maybe it's a longer ramp, but they they the highs are higher. It's like well, that's like a very specific business problem to say how can we wrap, ramp our reps faster. Exactly. Uh, or it gives you something to focus on because that's like half the problem, right? It's like, well, what do we, there's a million levers to change. Like, well, where do we need to switch it? So, um, yeah. And I I, I love that point, right? Going back to what you said a minute ago, I, I think that's spot on. It's less around the accuracy of the forecast and it's more around, can you clearly articulate how you are trying to sell, how you are trying to run your business? And if you can't, 
you probably should be able to <laughs> otherwise you're you're probably leaving some efficiency on the table here so it's it's all muscle building um it, these things do take practice mm. um but if you do invest the time to be able to start forecasting to be able to start learning from those forecasts uh things will things will typically break your way over time yeah or you see if there's unfortunately i mean sometimes there's just like dark clouds on the horizon and like the sooner that you see that the better um we were even talking about i mean there's been an endless amount of news there's like websites that are popping up around tracking layoffs and you know especially with like the way that the public markets are moving you know it's just like there are a bunch of businesses that are you know i think uber released a message that says like hey like we're now interested in like free yep. cash flow um which is like a huge yep. change for them <laughs> i don't think they've ever been you know i don't think they've ever generated a free <laughs> dollar ever i don't actually I don't know if that's true or not but that, you know it's like my untrained public perception so um i think what you know, our thought is kind of a release. If I were to advise these businesses, it's like, you know, you can, especially at the much smaller scale, these companies are dealing with, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars. Um, but it's like, you know, if you're going to have a shortfall, you're going to have a budget shortfall of $50,000. Um, and that's going to be, you know, six months from now. And you have a AdWords budget of $10,000. It's not a productive channel. Well, if you just cut that to zero now, like you will, you will not have that budget shortfall, yep. you know, in six yep. months. So just being able to have a little bit of visibility of like when the, you know, I think getting that revenue model locked in is great for when things are going great, but then having an idea of like, you know, where the storm clouds are and where do things, you know, when does your bank forecast go yep. below zero? Like that's a really important, and how does that change? Is that like speeding up or is, you know, it's just runway, you know, is that speeding up or is that slowing down or every single month when you check it's, you know, one month further in the future that, you know, it's like, those are pretty important things as a business to understand, like, where do I stand as far as like, what's the best case? And then what's the worst case? And then like, what does real, what does reality seem to be saying yeah, about no, I, that? I think you're spot on. I think the, with the market that we're in right now, um, fundraising money does not grow on trees. Uh, there's definitely more yep. of a focus on unit economics, a viable business model for early stage companies, finding product market fit easier. Um, and to your point, right, you don't want to be in a position to where you haven't been thinking proactively about the future. Maybe you've overhired, you totally whiffed on your revenue forecast, and suddenly you have no options but to lay folks off or really start to cut into the bone of your business. I think as long as you're putting in the time, probably once a month at minimum, maybe twice a month, depending on how, how fast your business is moving, it doesn't need to be a, a crazy full day exercise, but just take tabs on the financial health of the business. Make sure that you're not overextending yourself, that there's still optionality, levers that you can pull um, so that you don't put yourself in a tough spot because no one, no one wants to be cutting into bone and doing destructive things to their business in order to, to stay afloat during tough times. Yeah. Yeah. Getting rid of team members is obviously the worst case scenario because those are also like that's your that is like effectively your only yep. vector to yep. growth. And like, you know, it's like if you're in the spot where you need to fire salespeople to, you know, to correct a budget shortfall, it's like, well, that was your that was your yep. plan to grow. Like that's where the the new money is going to come from. So it's like you're you're kind of um it's definitely, and I, I don't want to make the argument that like that's never the correct thing to do. And you know, sometimes layoffs are, um, you know, sometimes companies just uh, the, the issue happens in a different department. You know, the hiring doesn't, you know, is not happening rigorously. And, you know, sometimes you, the, it is the way that you have to go. But I think a lot of times you, you kind of run into this, um, you kind of get stuck. If you wait too long to notice what's happening, then you, you have only, you get to the point where there's yep. only bad decisions. Like it, you know, three months earlier, you had like, you know, kind of crappy decisions, but, you know, we could live with it. And then six months before that, you had like, you know, some okay decisions. But, um, you know, if you wait until like the month of, it's like you just have like the worst, you know, you have to like kind of react yep. atomically yep. Um, to either like raise money in like a terrible way um, on like a very short term basis and, you know, experience a bunch of dilution or cutting expenses yep. painfully. Uh, which obviously the most painful way to cut expenses is to fire somebody who is like counting on you. I think that like it's something I've been thinking a lot is like that kind of like shirks your responsibility as like a, as a leader and, you know, 
we i think society talks a lot about how like uh you know ceos overpaid and, and stuff like that but i think like the important component is like that is like the super important responsibility that every founder has like if somebody's like trusting you and you're recruiting them and they're kind of along for the ride like that is that yep. is on you like and you need to like uphold that too like that needs to be the number one hundred percent, hundred percent. Um, and, and I, I really love that. I think one of the things that our CEO at Palantir uh, was a big proponent of, and definitely has stuck with us all these years, is maintain optionality. Right. I think to your point, you wait until the twelfth hour. There's no other options. You got to let people go or whatever it is. You have no options at that point. So, spending a little time each month thinking about the, the, the financial health of your business, projecting different scenarios out into the future, you maintain that optionality and that is huge when building a business. Cool. Well, let's let's fast forward to today. So you you were kind of in Palantir and kind of responsible for creating all these different systems. It sounds like that was a big inspiration when you were like, hey, like, well, you know, maybe there's opportunities out here. Like, what was the process of of looking to leave Palantir and start? Yeah. So six years at Palantir, um, Joe, Brian, and I we learned an incredible amount. As I mentioned along that journey, really trying to be more forward looking to the business and we've got this company that's just in hyper growth we tried every off-the-shelf tool out there um ultimately had to go build our own tools because none of the none of the tools that that we could find and implement was doing exactly what we needed so uh six years into palantir i think um we got more than we ever could have bargained really just an incredible journey still grateful um for that opportunity and the three of us wanted to be finance number one so i went on to be the uh finance leader at piazza joe went to axani and BarkBox. brian went to everlaw and very quickly, I think within those first couple months, we realized, wow, everything that we did at Palantir that was more out of necessity, turns out right. every company needs this. And uh, uh, if you don't have a billion dollars on the balance sheet like Palantir did at the time, and you don't have a very technical finance team to solve a lot of these strategic problems, it's really, really difficult to go from kind of this reactive, backwards-looking finance function to one that is forward-looking and can really shed light into uh, into the future. So uh, at that point, um, spent roughly a year at, at those respective companies building out the finance function, again, building our own set of tools to solve these problems. Um, it had spent close to the better part of a decade thinking about this problem, becoming domain experts, uh, still had this strong belief that legacy tech in the space wasn't scratching the itch for modern day companies. Uh, and that's really the genesis behind Mosaic. Cool. So you, you, three of you did it together and then you split up, you realize you had to now independently basically rebuild the same system that you had already built. Uh, and then you're like, Hey, like, well, let's not leave and go to another role and then, you know, spend the rest of our careers solving exactly. the same problem exactly. repeatedly. Like let's kind of create the system. Um, so yeah, what was the, pro- so I guess you kind of like, uh, it sounds like you were kind of in contact roughly. Was that kind of the, the conversation once you got through that, that year or, you know, kind of with everybody, it's like, Hey, like we kind of just all did the same thing again. Uh, maybe there's an opportunity here and. Was there anything, I mean, I, I was going to ask, like, did you do anything to like, you know, then validate further, but it sounds like that's kind of yeah. what you did. Like, yeah. you, like you did it at one company, you moved, you found the same issues and you're like, you know, was that kind of enough validation? You felt like, okay, there's something here for us to make yeah, an investment Yeah, at that, at that point, um, we did feel like we had a, a good chunk of validation, spending a good eight, nine years thinking about this problem in earnest and really coming up with a creative solution to solving it. Um, so... Uh, gosh, early, early 2019, um, I, I quit my gig, um, and started thinking about this problem in earnest, uh, a couple months later, Joe, Brian, uh, Joe joined me. And then a couple months later after that, Brian joined. So, uh, yeah, it was a big leap. Um, it's definitely one thing to, uh, talk about doing something. It's another to quit your really great high paying job, um, start to build a business, uh, you have to figure out 
how are we going to get this thing off the ground, putting your own money into it, watching your bank account go down each week. Um, so the, the, the highs uh, and kind of that, that initial high of, hey, I'm going to go build this business and it's going to be so incredible and all that stuff uh, definitely uh, becomes quite real uh, when, once you're actually doing it. Yeah, it's kind of like the, the, the double-edged sword to starting a business as someone who comes from the finance function of like, you are yep. hugely aware of like how, how numbers are going down, how revenue's burning. Like, it's, you know, I think it's, it's sometimes it can be a power to the startup founder that they're not com- completely aware of everything that's going on because it, it kind of gives you the, the ignorance to plow forward. But that wasn't the case for you. Like, you knew probably specifically down to the day of like, okay, here's, <laughs> and today we, we have like, whatever, we have 180 days left. And then next time yep. we have a, yep. 179 <laughs> days left. Like you just like, you, you have the no, no blessing. Yeah, of yeah, exactly. There. And I, I think one of the other learnings, um, now kind of seeing things from the other side of the coin, not just from a, a finance lens is as much as we've been talking about forecasts and modeling and trying to be accurate, again, the reality is, especially early on, there is no data that is going to support what you're gonna be able to do. It's it's just an idea, you're plowing forward. And so I think one of the big things for, for me and, and also for Joe and Brian is as analytical as we want to be, um, sometimes the reality is you can't you can't build a business in an Excel file. Um, you, you actually got to get away from your computer, and there's certain things that data is never going to be able to tell you. And uh, you got to be out there rolling up your sleeves trying to make things happen. So that was definitely an adjustment, knowing when to lean into uh, the superpower of looking at the numbers and analyzing the numbers. And there's other times when the numbers aren't going to tell you any story, and you just got to go find a way to make things happen. Right. You have to put put that finance. You're, you you went from a bunch of roles where you were in that kind of later stage finance role. You have to kind of put it back into the earlier stage of like, OK, we're going to look at this once a month and it's going to, you know, be backwards looking. And it's, you know, it's up to us to figure out what the future looks like and to we need to spend all of our time getting the data that we'll eventually use to modeling, which hopefully means like closed customers and, you know, exactly. Exactly. So uh, it's been fun. It's been fun wearing those different hats for sure. Awesome. What was the experience for you getting your your first couple of customers in, um, you know, going from being in the role to kind of now trying to recruit people to solve a similar problem? How did that go yeah, for you? Um, it, it it was tough um, at the time. I, we were kind of a big proponent of let's try to get customers early on. I think one of the things we learned from Palantir is uh, they have this concept of forward deployed engineers where you're basically with the with the customer on site building the product hand in hand with them making sure that you're building exactly what they want and so for us um trying to go out there find customers start to build the product around them um but you've got a a couple folks who are non-technical with with joe and i um and saying hey uh we're gonna build this thing it's gonna be great but we have nothing to show for it we have no engineers we've just got a tiny bit of money that we've raised was a tough sell. So um, definitely um, took a lot of persistence, but really fortunate to find uh, a couple early folks who were willing to take a chance on us and uh, feel grateful for for that opportunity for sure. That's awesome. Um, well, as we kind of like bring it in for a landing here, I'm just kind of curious, like what what's going on current day? Like, what do you what do you have your your mind on? What's kind of uh, where, where are you spending your time today? Any kind of like cool upcoming, you know, features you want to talk about or, you know, it's kind of like what's what, what's consuming your your time now that you're actually running yeah. and, you know, uh, yeah. So uh, roughly three years in. Um, come a long way in three years. We we just hit 100 employees, so there's a lot of surface area to cover uh, across the company. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think for me, uh, of course, it's checking in with the exec team, spending a lot of time not only building out the, the leadership team, uh, but also trying to get kind of updates from, from different areas of the organization. Um, and then as a CEO, I feel like where I focus my time and attention 
will, will typically result in kind of uh, a little more velocity in that part of the business. So last year, uh, it was starting to build out the go-to-market function, spent a lot of time with, with Joe, rolling our sleeves up, building sales, building the marketing function, um, feel really uh, like we've done a, a pretty good job there and now have a, a sales leader in place and a very strong sales and marketing team. And so uh, my my time kind of changes depending on the, the, the given month, given quarter, but at the moment uh, focused on uh, doing similar work, building out the, the product team at the moment. Cool. That's awesome. I'm sure it feels, well, actually, I don't know. I imagine it feels a lot different than your your other roles, but maybe it doesn't. Maybe it kind of has a similar vibe. Yeah, it, it is different for sure. Um, I, I think I think what I love about it is when when you're when you're on the finance side, and I guess this would be advice that I would give to folks is it's very easy to get lost in the numbers and understand different functions of the business, but really through the lens of Excel spreadsheets or what are the outputs of your model, uh, and so. What's been fun, I think, being in the role that, that I'm in now is actually seeing the other side of things. Uh, it's not just about numbers on an Excel sheet uh, or hopefully in Mosaic. Uh, it's actually, what does it take to go hire a, a sales team? What does it take to start to boil down that sales methodology into something that, that other folks can learn and, and repeat? Um, and, and so that, that would be kind of one piece of advice that I would give to, to folks in the finance space is spend time, really get to know your peers and departments that you're working with and try to see the business through their lens, not just through the finance side of the coin, which is typically numbers uh, on a spreadsheet. Awesome. I think that's a, that's an awesome note to end on. Um, well, I think we, we've come really like full circle here. So I, I think this will be really, um, this will be really useful for people to listen to. I think finance is an area, like you mentioned, I think the vast majority of people who start businesses or kind of get in at an early stage do not have a finance background and all this stuff um, that sounds very scary to them or it's like very intimidating. Um, and I, I think it's it's this has been really awesome to hear from you as far as how can you kind of put each stage of like, you know, not necessarily what's the minimum that you can do, but sort of understanding what's the role of finance at each stage and then getting a little bit of uh, explanation and, and kind of support to like, okay, well, why are you doing this stuff? It's not, you know, just because you have to, like, here's kind of the business value. Uh, and then, you know, now they know about your tool as well, which can help them along the way. So I guess just to, to round it out, like if they want to either learn more about you or the product, like um, we'll have obviously links everywhere that this is um, distributed, but I uh, give you a chance kind of a, for the kind of last shout out, where would you like to, if people want to learn more, where, yeah, where would you recommend they go? Yeah, I appreciate that. Check out our website, mosaic.tech. And, uh, uh, any entrepreneurs thinking about starting a business, going through the same journey, always up to chat. So uh, shoot me an email and we would love to spend time getting to know you. Awesome. Well, thanks so much for your time. I appreciate it. Thanks, Brian. Really appreciate you having me on. Talk soon. That was our conversation with Bijan Noah Lenny, the CEO and co-founder of Mosaic. If your finance team needs a better way to do financial planning and analytics, check out mosaic.tech. If it's business analytics and growth tools you're looking for, check us out at bearmetrics.com. We hope you enjoyed this episode and invite you to check out our other founder chats. And if you're able to share with a friend to leave a review, it goes a long way. Thanks for listening.